Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and this is the Downtime Podcast, where we're going to be taking you deeper than ever into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. For all those wanting to support the podcast, Patreon is finally here. It seems like a lot of people really appreciate the value that the podcast brings them and they want to do something in return. Until recently, I thought about Patreon as another thing where I needed to offer value, which at this point in time just isn't feasible. I'm fully maxed out doing the podcast and bringing in the video side of things too. But from chatting to some of you, it's clear that you feel I'm already providing heaps of value with the podcast and you just want to say thanks and do something to help and you don't need anything more from me as a result. So that makes Patreon feasible. This year isn't easy for anyone as the cost of living has clearly risen massively and that's impacting the bike industry pretty hard right now. That knocks on to me and it's definitely harder for me to make a living out of the podcast this year. I guess it's worth saying that the podcast is my full-time job. It's how I earn my living and provide for my family. So right now, it really makes sense for me to open up a way for those of you who find value in the podcast to be able to give something back. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's becoming increasingly common as a way for fans to support creators, and it enables you to very easily set up a regular monthly donation to the podcast. Now, I fully appreciate not everyone is going to be in a position to contribute, even if you do find value in the podcast, and that's totally fine. The great thing is, is that some people will want to contribute, and overall, it's going to help the podcast continue. There are three different levels that you can support at. The first of those is just £3 a month. That's less than £1 an episode and less than the cost of one cup of takeaway coffee a month. If enough people contribute at that level, then it's really going to help me keep the podcast going. If you want to put in a little more, then there is a £5 a month level and a £10 a month level too. If enough people contribute at those levels, then it's really going to start helping me step things up a bit. I'd love to bring someone in to handle the video and the social media side of things and to take some load off of me so I can focus on creating more great content, which ultimately benefits you, the listeners. So if you get value from the podcast, I don't know, maybe you've learned something that's helped you riding or your fitness. Maybe it's got you stoked to go riding or to come back from an injury, or maybe it's just something to pass the time when you can't be riding your bike. Then why not do a little something in return and sign up to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I'll stick links to that in the show notes for this episode. And I've put a banner at the bottom of my website homepage over on downtimepodcast.com. Before we move on, I want to say a massive thanks to the patrons who've signed up in the last week. Those awesome people are Paul Morris, Tony Pocock, Ian Smith, Sean Lerner, Andy Burrell, Darren Lynch, Sarah Broadhead, Anti Circus, Ben Bell, Sean McGowan, who's also an absolute legend for sending me some amazing extract coffee beans, Patty Elliott, Timo Yetzer, Russell Golden and Kathleen Long. If you want to join that list and show your love for the podcast, then patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast is the place to head. If you want a t-shirt, sweatshirt, hoodie, they are, of course, still available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Also, while you're here, don't forget to follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can do that by hitting the button in your podcast app now or by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can also keep in touch by giving us a follow on Instagram or Facebook where we're at Downtime Podcast. All right, today I'm joined by the founder of Rider Resilience, Nils Amelings. Five and a half years ago, Nils was diagnosed with cancer and given about five years to live. Nils firmly believes that mountain bikes have not only helped improve the quality of that life, but it's also helped him extend it. We chat about his journey over the last five years and how important mountain biking has been to him. Hear how a film project was the catalyst for Rider Resilience, a community interest company which aims to amplify the benefits that the humble bicycle can have for anyone dealing with hardship in whatever form. I was personally really inspired by Nils's positivity and drive, and I hope this episode can help spread that inspiration and show just how powerful mountain biking can be. So without further ado, here's Nils Amelings. 
All right, Nils Amelinx, welcome to the Downtime Podcast, man. How's things with you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for thanks for having me. Um, means a lot, really, to have this opportunity to uh, to have a chat with you. I feel a little bit. Well, I feel like a no one compared to the names you usually interview, but yeah, it means a lot. Thank you. Oh, not not at all, mate. You are more than welcome, and I'm really excited to uh, and and a bit nervous, I guess, to dig into your story, right? Because it's not it's not an easy one for sure. But we'll uh, we'll work our way through. Let's go right back to the start, though. Just give us a little bit of background on where you grew up, because you you're from Belgium originally, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. So I um. Yeah, I grew up in Belgium. I grew up just uh, just north of Brussels, really, um, and uh, lived there until I was about 12 years old. And then my dad got a, um, a job at a European school in Oxfordshire, um, like a nine year contract um, to teach uh, to teach over there. So we uh, we uprooted and we all moved across. And I think everyone thought it was just a temporary thing. But, um, you know, when you're 12 and you sort of when you move at that point, that's when you really kind of develop yourself as an individual, don't you? So, um, yeah, I went to university in the UK eventually. And then and then to be fair, I'd had enough of the UK. I thought, right, that's it. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm moving. I'm moving to France. I was going to go and live in the uh, in the French Alps and uh, register myself with the with the French embassy. Um, well, sorry, the Belgian embassy in France. And um yeah, met my now wife over there during the first ski season, um, and she was from the Lake District. She was from Kendall, so at the end of the season, it was one of those things where you know she had to come back. She only got one year out of her her career, like a sabbatical, um, and either I came back with her or we went our own ways. And yeah, I came back to Kendall, and the rest is history. I'm still here now, all those years later. Good stuff. Worst places to base yourself, right? If you like the outdoors. Yeah, I mean, I, I always sort of say it jokingly, like if she'd been from Birmingham, I'd probably still be in the Alps now. But, <laughs> but I shouldn't say that, should I? <laughs> Amazing. And and how about the cycling side of things? Because coming from Belgium, there's a big like road riding uh, scene there, I guess, more so than mountain biking. How did you get into riding, and how did mountain bike biking become part of that? Yeah, so I mean, like bike stuff, as you know, huge in in Belgium and. You know, we always used to to ride everywhere. It was kind of just our freedom. So um, I remember getting a like a steel framed, fully rigid, twenty six inch mountain bike. With um, I was really excited because it had V brakes on it, so I could do really good skids on it. Um, but yeah, we used to always sort of commute to to school and bits and bobs on on bikes. Um, but it was always just you know part of just everyday life. It wasn't ever. I never really cycled for leisure, if that makes sense. Apart from just yeah. to get to like my mate's house. Um, and, um, I really sort of got into, into mountain biking when I moved to the lakes, um, which is now 13 years ago, um, because yeah, I've always been really into kind of like adrenaline sports, like what you want to call like extreme sports, etc. So I used to do a lot of rock climbing, um, did a lot of, uh, a huge amount of snowboarding and, um, yeah, mountain biking, carried quite a lot of similarities to snowboarding, sort of picking your way down a mountain, that sort of feeling of speed, you know, the adrenaline and just in general fitness as well, actually, just getting out and about. Um, I mean, when I first moved to the lakes, I was really excited about all the rock climbing opportunities, but I think um, I always dismissed people who said, oh, it's, it's pretty grim up north, it rains a lot. <laughs> I I, uh, I thought they were just chatting nonsense only because I'd been to the lakes a couple of times and both times it was like 30 degrees and blue skies 
And um, yeah, as it turns out, I think it's only ever been 30 degrees and blue skies twice. And both times I probably happened to be in the lakes. <laughs> yeah. So so I soon gave up on, on climbing as much because it was so weather dependent. And, uh, and with bikes, I just found you could ride in all weathers. And, you know, even if it was chucking it down, you'd come back with a big smile on your face. So, yeah, that really kind of took over then and just got really passionate about it. Amazing. And you were working in the outdoor industry as well, right? Is it you work for Leon? Is it Leon Equipment? Yeah, the, yeah, it's Lion, Lion Equipment. Yeah. So, I mean, um, that's one of those things. I, I always just sort of followed my hobbies around professionally. So um, when I was at uni, I was doing a, a huge amount of climbing started working for like a large um, outdoor retailer called Cotswold Outdoors just to get cheap climbing kit effectively. Um, and then when I went to France, I worked in a ski shop because I was able to sell, you know, waterproof clothing well, etc. So I, I ended up doing that. And then when I moved back to the lakes, obviously there's no shortage of outdoor stores. So it's quite easy to find work. Um, and then, yeah, I just kind of worked my way up the supply chain, if that makes sense. So eventually I ended up working for for line equipment um, quite close to where I live. And um, at the time, there were the distributors for like Petzl, like a big kind of like hands-free lighting and climbing brand, um, La Sportiva climbing shoes, but they always did um, cycling luggage, uh, a brand called Ortlieb, a German brand. And yeah. um, when I worked there for, for a number of years, because I was so passionate about cycling, one thing led to another and effectively, I became a sales rep, started just selling Ortlieb panniers, and then kind of grew a, a cycle division from that, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So you're, you're, if we fast forward a little bit, you're kind of in your late 20s, healthy, riding loads in the outdoors, living in the Lake District, on the road a bit with your work. And there were a few kind of warning signs early on, right? Tell us a little bit about those and like how that was dealt with, I guess, by the medical professionals. <laughs> Name and shame. No, not really. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I suppose like my symptom was, um, like the, the clearest symptom that I had was kind of like blood in my stools. Um, probably started when I was about 29. I remember uh, working at, um, at a gravel event called the Dirty Reaver. And um, it had been quite a long day. Um, I sort of drove home from, from Kielder and I came home and went to the toilet and like I passed quite a lot of blood and it was a big kind of alarm signal. Um, and I went to, I went to the doctors obviously as you would, and they sort of dismissed it said, Oh, you've probably picked up like some sort of tropical disease or like a virus or, you know, probably just like a temporary thing, like a fissure or something like that. Um, but I could just tell something wasn't quite right. And, um, and in the end I ended up asking for a private referral for a colonoscopy because they did refer me for a, for a colonoscopy, but I'd have to wait another three or four months, I think, because I wasn't a, a high-risk um, individual. Um, the waiting list was just quite long. So I ended up getting a, a, like a colonoscopy privately. And, um, and I was a little bit sedated, but you could sort of follow everything on screen. And I remember the guy like taking samples of something and it was like, it was so obvious, like there was this ping pong ball size thing in my in my colon. I didn't really think much of it. I just thought like, oh yeah, it must be like, you know, it could be just a bit of a growth or something, but yeah, whatever. And uh, anyway, I came by and Laura and I, Laura's my wife, I, we, we, we said like, let's just go out for a meal. Went out for a meal, um, came home. And then when we were driving home, I got a phone call from uh, from from the the consultant. And, uh, and he said, um, are you... 
are you driving? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm just driving home. He's like, all right. Oh, well, I expected you to still be in the hospital because I wanted to kind of come and, you know, do a debrief. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a call. I'll give you a call later when, you, when you're at home. And as soon as he said that, I knew it was going to be bad news because he obviously didn't want to tell me whilst I was driving. So, yeah, so then... Um, got home, he rang me and he said, yeah, you've got, you've got bowel cancer. You need to go back onto the NHS to have like a multidisciplinary team around you. Um, and then the first thing they do is they put you through a CT scan to see if anything else is uh, spread. And yeah. I noticed a couple of weird things in my liver. Um, so they're obviously quite, quite worried about that being like a secondary or like, a, you know, the cancer having spread to, to different organs around the body. And I, could, I completely dismissed it because I'd had a, um, I'd have a, I'd had a, a liver lesion the year before riding at Fort William. I'd come off my bike and I basically lacerated a liver. It's like, oh no, no, it's scar tissue. Don't worry about that. Anyway, they were right and I was wrong. So, yeah. Long story short, effectively, it meant that I had stage four cancer. And then still, I was completely, I was just ignorant to what was going on. And I thought, all right, okay, well, it's one of those hurdles that you've got to deal with in life. We'll get through it. And I remember that first session with my oncologist when I was about to start chemotherapy post-surgery and she was like, what do you know so far? And I said, well, I, well uh, I've got this, this and this, and that's what happened. And she said, has anyone, has anyone talked to you about the prognosis? And I was like, no, not really. She said, well, we won't be able to cure this. And and, and at that point, like my, my world just collapsed around me because um, my daughter was a year and a half, year and a half old at that time. Um, my little boy was on the way. Um, my, my wife was six months pregnant. And um, and yeah, it just it, suddenly I was like, oh, wow, this is really serious. Sort of said like, OK, well, what is the prognosis then? And she said, well, you know, at max maximum, you're looking at kind of five years now. And at that time I was 30 years old. So, yeah, it came as a big shock. It came as a massive shock, as you can imagine. Yeah, it's uh, a huge blow to be given. So like, where do you... Where do you go from there? Like, how do you start to process that? Like, from a a life and living perspective, from a mental perspective. Before we talk about the treatment, like, mm. how do you sit down with your wife and work out how does this? How do we deal with this? I don't know. In all fairness, I don't have a ready-made answer. It's one of those things where I think I just went right. Okay, well. I'm just gonna have to strap myself into this roller coaster and just ride the ride through its highs and lows. I mean, there's not really a lot I can do. I'm just gonna to have to, you know, go on that journey and, and see how, how things go. And, um, you know, our coping strategy throughout was always just to, to have as much normality as possible. So, you know, with our kids, we just carried on doing what we would have otherwise done wherever possible. Um, you know, took them, took them skiing, like taught them how to ride bikes, all of the above, um, just to try to sort of be normal parents and to have that normality. And I carried on working as well for as long as I could, um, just because again, it kind of focused the mind. You weren't just sat at home looking at the same four walls, really kind of overanalyzing the situation that you were in. And, um, you know what, that actually, for us, that kind of worked quite well. Like, um, I remember a couple of years ago, I said to my mom, I said, oh, yeah, I've, uh, had a pretty good year and she looked at me like you've had a pretty good year like you've had chemo every two weeks you've been in hospital about three times you've had major surgery and you're telling me you've had a pretty good year and it's just because 
I somehow managed to forget about, you know, the really kind of terrible parts of what I was going through and remembered the good things. And it just became this natural coping mechanism for right or wrong. I don't know. I mean, it might be that it's all stored somewhere and suddenly it's all going to come bubbling up. But um, yeah, so far it seems to have worked pretty well. Do you think that that approach came naturally to you or is that something you've had to work at? Yeah, no, I think it, it did actually come quite naturally to me. I think uh, sometimes I look back and I and I sort of su I feel surprised about how I dealt with the situation myself. I look back and I think because <clears throat> there was quite a lot of quite a lot of cancer in my family. Like all my grandparents have had cancer. Three out of four um, have actually passed away as a result of cancer, and. Um, yeah, it was sort of like my worst nightmare. I always thought like, crikey, like that day that you get diagnosed, you know, life will end. And sometimes I look back now and I think, oh, it's like I've actually remained a lot more positive and smiley than I thought I, I ever would have, you know, when that yeah. situation did arise. So, yeah, I think some of it is built in, but at the same time, some of it then becomes trained as well because you fall into a bit of a routine and you can sort of work on that, you know. Um, when you find that that works for you, you can really kind of focus on that as a as a coping strategy. Yeah, for sure. I, I read a quote with you that I really I really liked, and you you said, "If you can't add days to your life, make sure you add life to your days," which is an awesome way to look at things. But I'm I'm interested to hear like what that means to you. How do you take that and embody that on a on a daily basis? Yeah. <sighs> I mean, in a way, you with with any kind of illness like this, you don't know how many days you've got left. So you kind of need to make every day count, and you know you kind of want to focus on um, doing all the the good stuff that kind of makes you feel happy and gives you the the resilience to deal with the shitstorm that you find yourself in. Um, but uh, I saw this amazing analogy, um, and and it, and it really resonated with me, and it was somebody holding a glass of water and uh, and they said, you know, the water is your life effectively. And then they put a spoonful of dirt in there and stirred it all up and it was really murky. And there's like bits floating around everywhere. And they said like, everyone at some point in their lives are gonna face some type of hardship. You know, they're gonna end up in a bit of a shit storm. And you can spend ages trying to scoop it all out, trying to kind of get rid of all that hardship. But as a result, you're just going to be reducing the amount of days that you've got because you're taking water out with it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And actually, the better thing to do is just to grab more life and they grab the big can of water and just poured it in and it all just kind of came flowing out. And as a result, the water became much more or the dirt became much more diluted and yeah. the water became a lot clearer again. It was like, you know, at the end of the day, the best thing to do is to just add more life to deal with this situation. I thought, yeah, perfect. That's exactly how I feel about it as well. That's a really, yeah, really strong way to look at it. And we're in this kind of um, age, I guess, where there's so many things trying to take us away from the moment, like social media is trying to get our attention, email, messages, all this kind of stuff. There's so many things that pull us away from what we should be focusing on. I'm guessing trying to live in the moment is something that you've found even more important over the last few years. Have you found ways that have helped you do that and like stay off your phone and focus on you know how cool life is and how amazing these opportunities and these days are yeah. the, the first thing that kind of springs to mind is um 
is it's kind of focusing on photography a lot more. Mm. So um, I've always been really into into taking pictures, but last few years um, started taking it a lot more seriously. Partly because I wanted to document my adventures to leave a little bit of an inspirational legacy for my children to to think you know actually my dad was getting up to some cool stuff and they might want to go and like retrace um, what I was getting up to. Um, but also because when I was feeling poorly, you know, as a result of either, you know, surgery and you're recovering from that or there's chemotherapy and you can't get out of the sofa, you've got all these amazing images that you can look back at and nearly kind of relive that time. Um, and then, yeah, one of the things that I um, I really sort of started to focus on was was getting out for sunrise. So I call it the bonus hours because (laughs) you, you know, most people, you get up, you have your breakfast, you go into your eight hours of work, you come home, you know, sort some bits and bobs out, have your, have your tea, watch some telly and go to bed. And a lot of people say, I haven't got the time to do all of that. I haven't got the time. But if you've got the willpower to create that time, it's totally doable. So quite a lot, quite a lot of the time we'd get up at like, you know, four o'clock in the morning, drive to the base of Helvellyn here in the Lake District, and then, uh, yeah, ride and push our bikes up to the summit, just as the sun sort of cresting the horizon over towards the east. And then you ride this amazing descent down um, one of the ridge lines, end up back at the bottom, you've done like, what would it be? Probably about 800 metres vertical. And, you know, you get back to work for eight o'clock in the morning <laughs> and people are still kind of like, you know, rubbing sleep out of their eyes and you've already had like a prop of big mountain adventure. Um, and yeah, that has allowed me to, yeah, I suppose not, not switch off from that, from that daily buzz, but yeah, in a way it is switching off from that because everyone's still asleep and nothing's really happening yet, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Good effort. That's uh yeah, that's amazing. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, I guess the treatment. So you're straight into this routine of chemo every couple of weeks. What effect does that have on your body? Cause you're effectively, I guess, being poisoned every couple of weeks, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I think it's different for, for everyone. Like everyone reacts to, to chemo differently. And, um, it also depends on the type of cancer you've got, the type of chemotherapy you're being given. So, yeah. you know, mine, I think, was fairly well tolerated in the grand scheme of things. So I'd, I'd basically, I mean, I was getting, let me get this right, initially I was getting one, two, I was getting three different types of chemotherapy agents in the hospital. Uh-huh. And I'd take a chemotherapy pump home for four to six hours. So it's basically t- like it's like a little bottle that goes into, uh, like a line that goes into your uh, one of your main arteries. And um, yeah, I mean, sickness, um, nausea, all of the above, you get all the kind of usual symptoms, but they give you a shit ton of steroids as well to sort of like, yeah, make your body more able to kind of deal yeah, with, yeah. with the poison. Um, so it's this weird balance of feeling like really run down, but at the same time wired at night where you can't sleep. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the things that I ended up doing quite a lot was was trying to ride my bike just to get the blood flowing and kind of like, it felt like I was flushing the system of all these toxins. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that made a massive difference. It's a bit like I always compared it to, to like a, a huge hangover, that kind of feeling of feeling really lethargic, feeling quite quite nauseous. But actually, if you get out and do things more often than not, you come back and feel a bit better for it. Yeah. Um, 
but that's once I'd kind of found a bit of routine with it. I mean, initially they, they didn't quite get the dose right. And like my second cycle of treatment, was it second or the third? Either way, one of the first ones, um, I ended up being admitted to hospital because basically for about two days solid, I was just being sick. I had, I had you know, lots of diarrhea and I lost about a stone and a half over the course of two days. So I became wow. really, really weak really quickly. Yeah. And then they sort of tailored a dose and it became a little bit more, a little bit more manageable. Yeah. I heard you say initially that you wanted to kind of punish your body. You felt a bit like it had let you down. How, how did that manif manifest? Because I think the turbo trainer got a bit of a hammering, didn't it? Yeah, it did, yeah. Yeah, so I bought a turbo trainer. I always used to think, you know, oh, turbo is not, not for me. But um, yeah, one of the big things that helps me with kind of motivation is planning quite far ahead. So I planned this big Transalp mission. Um, we're going to go from like Garmisch to Lake Garda. And I've been piecing everything together, but I thought, well, I need a lot, a lot of fitness. And I got this turbo train and put this old, uh, like a cyclocross bike on there in the garage. And uh, yeah, it was just pretty much every night just going on there, redlining, like just putting my heartbeat into 180, 190. I'm feeling proud about it. And, and now in hindsight, like I've read into it a bit more, it's probably one of the worst things you can do because okay. your body needs to be able to recover. And mm -hmm. um, by running yourself into the ground, you actually make your immune system worse if that makes okay. sense yeah, yeah but it made me feel good because i always thought if i if i'm able to get fitter and get stronger then i'm still not knocking on death's door i'm still able to kick that can down the road and yeah. same with just riding bikes generally to be honest it it was one of those things where um yeah having a having a goal training for something um really kept me on on the straight tracks i mean funny thing is like my mate started thinking that I was on sort of, on some sort of finely tuned doping regime. To be fair, because <laughs> I I just started pulling away from my own climbs, and they were like, "Well, you're on chemo. How's this happening?" But the combination of steroids, all the training, I think yeah. I was fitter during chemo than I was beforehand. To be fair, because I was just I was just determined. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So you got into, I guess, ultimately you got into a, a reasonable balance between chemo and riding, and understanding how to use riding for your not just your physical, but your physical and your mental benefit, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a big time. I mean, it took quite a while for me to kind of discover that. It was, it was really, it was off the back of um, Kendall Mountain Festival. At first six months of treatment, I didn't ride my bike at all. I just thought there was too much going on to even really consider uh, riding my bike. And, uh, and I went there and it was Martin Ashton and uh, Andy McKenna and Martin Ashton, obviously, you know, hugely inspirational character. He'd just been and ridden A-line in Whistler on this adapted <laughs> bike. And, uh, and Andy McKenna, he just released uh, This Way Up, his film about how he used the bike as medicine effectively um, against multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I came away thinking, well, if those guys are letting their lives being uh, been like they they're not letting their illnesses or disability rule their lives then why am i letting it happen you know actually we need to uh just get out and ride again so started off gradually but then yeah eventually found a routine and uh and and genuinely i think part of the reason i'm sat here talking to you now is is thanks to the bike and you know partly due to actually riding so much throughout this whole well, it's now five and a half year cancer journey. Yeah. Do you think that's a physical thing or a mental thing or a combination of both that's 
kind of effectively helped you prolong your life, I guess. Yeah, absolutely both. I think they're, well, first of all, I think they're, they're, they're pretty intrinsically linked. Like I think if you're in a good place mentally, then it's easier to be in a good place physically uh, and vice versa. Um, but yeah, like I said before, you know, feeling physically fit always made me feel more resilient to be able to deal with things. And to be honest, there's been a couple of surgeries that I've had where I think if I wasn't as fit as I was, they probably wouldn't have even attempted it. Uh-huh. Um, but because I was pretty lean and pretty fit, um, I, I was sort of more operable, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then mentally, I mean, I, I've written about this in a few a few sort of cycling publications now, but yeah, I'm a huge believer that actually riding bikes more than anything else outdoors allows me to really kind of switch off because you've got to think of so many things like, you know, balance, speed, you know, will my bars fit between those two trees? There's so many things, so many decisions your mind is, is, is kind of making um, that you haven't got the time to think about the, the challenges of daily life. And actually, whenever I went out for a ride, I felt like for two hours, my brain could just switch off in in that regard. And mm-hmm. um, and, it, and, it, and it was like, like, if you imagine your brain's like a muscle, it felt like my brain was constantly cramping up and actually being out like riding, it allowed it to just relax for a little bit. Um, yeah. And it was so much more capable afterwards to make rational decisions. Because beforehand, it just felt like it was just too busy. Yeah. yeah, it's basically a meditation, I guess, right? It's that perfect, there's a, an, an amount of focus required, but not so much that it's stressful, but it doesn't allow your mind to drift onto other things. So it's it's basically, yeah, a good two-hour ride in the lakes is a two-hour meditation. Yeah, completely. And I think, yeah, I mean, we're super fortunate in that the, the scenery is really beautiful as well. So you can ride out onto a small hill and just sort of sit there and take in the view and watch the sunset. And that's exactly like that. It's very meditative. Um, but even I think if, if we just had like a trail center, um, like say Canic Chase and you get out for a ride, I still, I still think it's got, you know, a huge amount of, um, of similar benefits, even if you don't get those amazing views that you might get in the lakes, because you're outside and I think that fresh air and, um, and physical exercise combined, it, it, yeah, it's so powerful. I, I, I genuinely, genuinely believe that. Yeah, 100% agree with you on that. You you mentioned some surgeries. So part of the the treatment, I guess, is more than the chemo. And I think, is it H, HIPC, HIPEC, HIPEC? Is that like the ultimate kind of treatment for the type of cancer that you have? Yeah, HIPEC, yeah. So, so when I first had my surgery in Lancaster, they effectively removed the primary tumour in the colon. Um, but the... Um, the liver, the liver lesion, um, you know, it was there. It had to be, it had to be removed somehow. Uh-huh. And um, I started living extremely healthily in my, in my head, you know, started doing a lot of research into like superfoods and that side of things and started riding bikes a lot. And then obviously started chemotherapy because they knew they had to do, they knew they had to do HIPEC. Um, because on the scan they'd also seen, and during the surgery they'd also seen that um, the tumour had actually gone through the bowel wall and then was just floating around in, well, there was like, there were um, cancerous cells floating around in the abdominal cavity and they'll just nestle in uh-huh. place and sort of stick to organs. So what they needed to do was this surgery called HIPEC where effectively they open you up from your sternum, 
to your uh, pubic bone, top to bottom. They yeah. effectively unpack all your organs, like, like a suitcase. Um, they cut away any disease that shouldn't be there, both in the membrane that surrounds your organs and sort of like stuck to the organs itself. And then they effectively bleach that cavity with like a hot chemo solution. So the chemo is about 40 degrees. It's heated, um, which is too hot for the cells to survive. And it's a really, really strong chemo. Like if you had it intravenously, you know, you'd, you'd be dead. It's, um, right. it's really, really strong stuff. Um, but yeah, you basically lie there um, for uh, this, this different amounts of time, depending on the chemo they use. But I want to say it's something like... 40 minutes um the surgeon just go and have lunch and you just lie there when all this hot chemo is being pumped around you and then when that's done they drain it put all your organs back into your uh, uh abdominal cavity and then yeah put you back together so anyway long story short i wasn't eligible for it because i had this lesion in the liver and the worry was always that if they opened me up and tried to attack the what's called the peritoneal disease, so it's the disease in the in the membrane that surrounds your organs, then at that point, because you have to come off chemo both before and after surgery, it allow the uh, the lesion in the in the liver to grow too quickly, and for it then to become become inoperable in the liver. So yeah. they said, well, we can't do it. But um, with all the kind of superfoods and riding of bikes and bits and bobs. I ended up going to, to Blackburn and they were going to try to ablate it. So effectively put like a hot needle into the middle of this little lesion and zap it. And they were like scanning and looking around and couldn't find it. And they're like, can't find it. It's gone. So apparently that's pretty unheard of that a, you know, a bowel cancer liver lesion disappears yeah. with just chemo. So that's what happened. And then, then that made me eligible for, for this high surgery. So yeah, in I went and had that done. Um, and then, uh, I was all right for a while. I was recovering. I started riding bikes again. Um, and then eventually a scan showed that, uh, some of the, um, some of the liver had developed a new little lesion somewhere else. There was a little mini tumor that sort of popped up and I said, right, we'll go in and we'll attack that now. So they removed part of my liver. Um, and it's, it's a weird one because it's a surgery that I often forget about. It's one of those things like pretty major, but in the grand scheme of things, it feels minor. So they chopped yeah. part of my liver out. But during that operation, they'd noticed um, that the peritoneal disease was back as well. But it was really, really small. It was too small for it to be identified on the scan. But you could see yeah. it when uh, when they opened me up. So during the surgery, they, they rang the high-peck surgeon and said, you know, what, what do we do? And he said, right, well do your liver surgery and we'll do high pec again. So um, a year after the first high pec, I had high pec again. And um, yeah, it still hadn't really worked to be fair. But then the, um, it was the only possible surgery that potentially could be curative. So some people, yeah. to be fair, um, will be cured off the back of a high pec surgery. And they only do okay. it in two places in the UK. So it's either in Manchester or it's down in Basingstoke and that's it. Like if, if neither of those hospitals want to touch you, then you're out of luck. Um, right. So I was, I was pretty, pretty fortunate in that regard. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, the, the unfortunate thing is with, with repeated surgeries and always cutting open the same thing, you end up with like quite a lot of scar tissue and things sort of bonding together that shouldn't. Yeah. So I ended up with like a partial bowel obstruction because all this scar tissue just start getting quite knotty. And... Um, yeah, about a year and a... Well, it's nearly two years ago now. Crikey. Yeah, nearly two years ago now, I um, 
I ended up with surgery where they they bypassed some of the some of the bowel that just wasn't functioning properly anymore because it it effectively couldn't contract it was sort of stuck together with the scar tissue uh -huh. um so then now i've just got a very small bit of short bowel left which has to try to absorb everything from you know fluids to uh to to foods etc and that's quite tricky yeah um, that's a challenge in its own right <laughs> Do you, are you like using additional uh drugs and things to help the body do that then because that's i'm guessing that's quite a challenge right to get everything you need yeah totally yeah i mean I, I jokingly once did a little reel where i basically put all my uh all my medication in like a cereal bowl added milk and then sort of like ate it like that because <laughs> it, it's there's so many of them it was it, it just looked like i was having cheerios um but uh but yeah i mean i need to I need to take 16 um, loperamide tablets a day, which is, loperamide is like, um, uh, crikey, what's the, uh, I can't think of the, uh, the the famous medication for, for diarrhea. You might be able to think of it, Chris. It doesn't come to me now. Just call Ooh, it no, it doesn't come to me. Anyway, yeah, it doesn't okay. matter. 16 yeah, yeah. of them. Yeah. And then a load of codeine as well, just because codeine sort of, just calms the gut down and uh, uh -huh. and it's and it's all there just to sort of slow things down but yeah one of the one of the issues um that i that i find trickiest now is um is when you drink fluids like i can't drink plain water because actually it doesn't absorb that easily by your small gut and yeah. if you just drink loads and loads of water all that happens is you just flush all the nutrients out of your gut with it so yeah. i've now got to basically just have like sports drinks um you know adding uh, salt and sugar to to water and things like that uh -huh. to try to kind of absorb it a little little bit more. I have a lot of yeah. diorolite as well, which is horrible. It's like ribena with salt water. It's disgusting, but yeah. it does make a big big difference. And yeah. uh, I mean, that's all there to sort of slow things down a little bit. Amazing. So I'm guessing the recovery from something like the surgery is is more challenging, right? You're going to be out of action for longer when it comes to riding and, and you start to lose, especially with the dietary challenges, you start to lose muscle mass and fitness, huh? Yeah, fully. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So I, um, at first I thought I can bounce back from this pretty, pretty easily, but, um, but yeah, a lot of the time, like the first high pick, I was in hospital for eight days and, uh, for the first five days, I was pretty much bed bound. And yeah. then the second surgery was a bit longer. Third surgery was longer still. And then when I had this um, uh, kind of bypass operation, like when they bypassed part of the, the gut that wasn't working properly anymore, I was in hospital for quite a while. And yeah, you come out feeling pretty weak. So um, I ended up having to, to embrace the life of e-bikes, to be fair, because I just couldn't keep up with my peers anymore. You know, they're all just sort of fit and well 30-year-olds and off they go up the hill and I just couldn't keep up. So I ended up buying one of those sort of semi-fat e-bikes, like a super lightweight e-bike to uh, to be able to keep up with my peers, which has been great, to be honest. It's actually made me recover quicker, quicker as well as a result. Interesting. Yeah, they are amazing tools. What, what was your view on e-bikes then before you uh, went to the dark <laughs> side? I'm, I'm guessing is the way you were looking at it. Um. Oh, it was mixed. Like in a way, I often think, you know what? If it gets more people out, great. That's you know, if we want to get more people riding, perfect. Um, but unfortunately, there's a there's definitely the erosion side of things where you're riding a heavier uh -huh. bike, and in the same amount of time, you can basically do the same loop three times. 
and these bikes are heavier riders are sometimes unfortunately a bit heavier as well part of the reason why some of them get an e-bike and you notice that erosion just suddenly sort of like speeds up a little bit and i don't think they always give cyclists a good name if that makes sense yeah. certainly in the mountain bike world so um yeah i mean there's that and then and then part of what i really enjoy about being in the mountains is that kind of distancing from all things um like all the electronics and sort of things i mean i'm a bit of a hypocrite because i'm walking around with a, a camera and stuff like that excuse me but that hum of an electric motor in the hills just didn't really sort of seem to fit right with me yeah. um but then i had i had the choice of like well either you know you embrace it and you start riding one of those or you might not ride for quite a while longer and we all know what that does to your mental health and you know physical health as well um to try to get back into it so yeah i took the plunge and to be fair i've actually become more of an advocate for e-bikes um than anything else i actually think on the grand scheme of things i think they're they're a real enabler for a lot of people and certainly yeah. for kind of like you know commuting and stuff i just wish we had better infrastructure um and more people could leave the car at home it'd be absolutely brilliant it would be incredible yeah was it was it an obvious choice then to go for like one of the lighter weight e-bikes rather than sort of full fat style like big battery big torque things yeah i mean part of the reason was because i was kind of conscious of the erosion side of things yeah. but then the other side was um here in the lakes that there is still quite a lot of pushing and shouldering of bikes and i thought well if i've got a 25 kilo e-bike there's no chance of me shouldering that's like walking up a hill with a with a bag of cement effectively um so yeah that that kind of like lightweight category was perfect for me also partly because i couldn't afford like a, an analog bike and a full fat e-bike yeah. i just wanted one bike like i kind of do both and i suppose the unfortunate thing is like you could argue they don't do either properly but actually i think they've got their place i think they you know they give you a bit of a boost on the uphills but they are definitely more playful than a full fat e-bike they're a little bit more nimble on the trail still which is which is perfect yeah what have you chosen then so i started with a levo sl um uh -huh. initially and then because i work in the in the bike industry we see we seem to just try to change bikes every year just you know keep <laughs> things course. fresh and and try different things so currently i'm on an, an orbea rise and uh i don't know if i'm allowed to say this but uh, i think the orbea rise even though they're very 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 similar um yeah if i had to review both Back to back, I'd probably pick the Orbea Rise just because it's a little bit more contemporary in terms of geometry. Yeah, and uh, and I think I prefer the uh, Shimano motor as well to okay. uh, to the special one. But hey, there's so little in it. They're both great bikes. To be fair, they've been good. Yeah, awesome and so cool that it's given you the opportunity to get out there and ride, and also like you say, to get back on a bike sooner after any treatment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then in, you know, initially um, when I wasn't able to ride far they allow me to carry a little bit more in the way of kind of camera kit. So I just go out with friends and just say, well, you ride the same thing over and over again. I'll just take some photos and we'd get some of them published. Um, so it was really nice to be able to, yeah, kind of ride slightly differently with them. Um, they've been, they've been a real enabler, real kind of smile inducer for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Awesome bits of kit. So I first became aware of your story at it would have been at bike night at Kendall Mountain Festival. Oh, no way. Um, where you showed a film that you'd made called Rider Resilience. What, would that have been 2019? Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, I was, 
yeah, I was thinking back of that earlier. Um, yeah, that that was the the OG of the sort of story of ride resilience, um, and that's what made me actually think we could do more with this. To be fair, like the reception of that got, as as you'll probably know, um, at, uh, at bike night. Um, made me realise actually this this seems to resonate with a lot of people, and we should sort of try to spread this message a little bit further and a little bit and a little bit wider. Definitely. If we back up a little bit though, what made you decide to share your story in the first place? Like, how did that first Rider Resilience film come to be? So, a local mate of mine, Ben Gerrish, he organises um, or he used to organise a really informal. Um, gathering of like local riders, local creatives called uh, One More Brew. And um, we'd yeah. get a couple of kegs in from a local brewery. And it was basically an opportunity for people to showcase their little shredders to their mates um, without it sort of just going onto YouTube. We'd have a few pints and, you know, chew the fat. And the first one I did was basically the reason for me to just start riding again. It gave that kind of that purpose to getting out with some mates. I wasn't able to ride as fast or ride the same level of tech that they were, but I was able to kind of document it and we made a fun little fun little film. And then, um, yeah, from that, I thought, well, actually the next one, I'm gonna do like a solo film and, and talk more about how bikes have helped me recover mm -hmm. from, you know, various surgeries and how it's helped me or how, how they helped me on this journey currently that I'm on. Um, because there was a couple of other friends um, in this area who had had cancer as well. And, yeah. you know, bikes had made a, a massive difference to their recovery. So it was sort of telling my story and then linking those two stories into it as well. So that got shown at, at One More Brew the following year. And um, yeah, I got like this standing ovation. I completely wasn't expecting it because <laughs> there was some stuff there which was, you know, like pro grade really really well produced stuff and then there's mine which is more kind of story based self shot on a tripod very static um but you know quite a quite a heavy story linked to it and um yeah it was so well received and ben at the time he was he was part of the team who did them um who curated the films for bike night so he came to me and he said hey look we're keen to put it into bike night. Would you be up for that? And uh, yeah, the rest is history. You know, kind of went on to uh, the big screen at Kendall Mountain Festival and then yeah, chatted with Rob Warner and Lee Craigie about it. Um, and I came home and I thought, wow, I never expected that reception from, you know, something so simple. It was great. Yeah. And it's a big crowd, right? I don't know how many people fit into that that venue, but it's there's a lot of people there and the reaction was yeah. insane. Like I def it definitely... Get, it gave me the feels. It must have been insane for you to be there in that room. Yeah, you know, the good thing is you've got these bright spotlights on you, so you can't actually see the audience. But I think, <laughs> I think there's there's just shy of a thousand people in that in that hall. So yeah, it's a lot of people, and you know, a lot of a lot of real kind of industry bigwigs as well. So it's not just like a load of mates. It felt yeah, it felt like pressure was on. I mean, heck, Rob Warner was there, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So how do we get then from that night, that film to launching Rider Resilience kind of as it exists today? Tell us a little bit about the process from then till now. To be fair, I parked it initially um, because I was so busy with work and I was really keen to, you know, get out and ride and spend time with the family wherever I could. I thought, given the reception at bike night, 
this thing could explode and I just haven't got the time at the moment to you know work a full-time job get home close one laptop and open the next and start on that and yeah. I don't really I didn't really want to do a half-assed job of it either if that makes sense I didn't really want to have something which just wasn't that active it was just like one post every three months or so so mm -hmm. yeah I kind of packed it and then um, um, it will have been last autumn um, I was having a chat with my oncologist and I'd come back from France with quite a lot of quite a lot of sort of sciatic sciatica pains in my left leg uh -huh. and um, I was on chemo at the time I was on you know tablet based chemo when I was out in France um, and yeah when I came back um, I was in I was in agony like I basically I didn't know what to do with myself I couldn't ride bikes I couldn't really sort of sit still or stand or lay down I didn't really know what to do with myself and when they scanned me, they found there was a um, like a secondary tumor, which was which was pressing on that sciatic nerve quite high up where it leaves the spine. And it actually um, it made the spine that little hole around there where the nerve comes out made it really brittle as well. And it, it was one of those questions that I normally always shied away from. But I thought this doesn't sound good. I'm on one of the last um, types of chemo available for my type of cancer. I knew that. And I am on I am on chemo at the moment, and this thing is still progressing. It basically means that it's not reacting to the drugs anymore. Yeah. So I said to the oncologist, you know, look, what what are we looking at now? Because initially they said five years, and I haven't really got a clue what we're looking at. And I really kind of want to plan my life. And he said, well, right, well, we probably need to start talking in terms of months. And again, like my my world just kind of collapsed around me because. You know, when they said five years, I thought, yeah, that's hellish, but oh, five years, I'll just push that away for now, push that away. And yeah, suddenly yeah. it became a lot closer. And uh, I went to work and I said to the directors there, look, this is the situation that I'm in. Um, you know, I, I love doing what I do, but equally, I've got other things that I want to achieve in life. And, uh, and, and you know, Lion is an employee-owned business and it's very much kind of like it's got a real kind of family feel to it. So they just turned around and said, look, you've got to do what makes you happy, if that makes sense. And yeah. we will do, you know, we will do what we can. Um, you know, obviously anything you can do for us, great. But if you have a sunny morning and you think, I want to go and ride my bike, go and ride your bike. You only live once. And it was huge because like, I mean, I, I've always been indebted to them, to be fair, anyways, ever since I was diagnosed, it's been great. But um, it gave me the opportunity to focus on ride resilience um, and not have to worry about, you know, huge cuts in pay or anything like that. So, yeah, um, yeah so we started, we, 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 uh, we started ride resilience proper, I suppose. Amazing. God, tell us a little bit then about rider resilience how you see it and what it is you want rider resilience to achieve to go on to be yeah totally so rider resilience to me is i want it to be well first and foremost a source of inspiration where people can be reminded that actually riding your bike can be as effective as like uh, conventional medicine you know actually not just for um, physical hardship, but also, you know, mental hardship. People are going through some tough times. 
I think given how much bikes had kind of given me, I wanted to kind of give back to the bike and the wider industry and the wider community. Yeah. So I wanted to build this kind of community spirit where, you know, we draw on that kind of com like camaraderie of the, the bicycle industry and we support one another when we're going through times of hardship because like I mentioned earlier, at some point everyone's going to go through some tough times, whether it's, you know, grief because of bereavement or whatever else. It is just a given in life. And if we all just remember to encourage each other to get out on a bike and to ride, it's so good for that kind of mental real estate. Um, it's it's an easy one to kind of sideline and think, oh, I don't want to ride my bike today. But when you do go out and you come back, you feel great for it. So, yeah, I, I really want like Ride Resilience to become this inspirational library, if that makes sense. So, yeah, um, you know, stories from all types of hardship where the bikers really help people to kind of come to terms with that and help them to kind of what we call ride it out. You know, just sort of like move through that that time of hardship I want yeah. to kind of document those stories and share those stories so that people who are in a similar situation can be inspired and think oh actually my situation is completely different but yeah that that and that could work for me as well and off they go so so that's kind of one part to it and then the other part is for us actually to um to provide grants to movements that are kind of close to our heart. So we sell mm -hmm. merch. We obviously were looking for um, like corporate partners who we can work with so that we can provide grants on an application basis to movements that actually promote building of resilience and get more seats on saddles. Um, you know, things that in general just will make the world a better place. And yeah, the whole concept is like, it's like, well, what what can we do to to improve our little community, our world around us, if that makes sense? What can we do to all pay it forward and to pay back into something that's given us all so much joy, if that makes sense, which we sometimes just take for granted. But if you think about it, the amount of great experience we've all had collectively, um, we, we're indebted to the bike and we're indebted to the industry, we're indebted to the community. So it's a way of paying back, if that makes sense. Yeah, a hundred percent. It makes sense. How how has the response been so far? Because you launched in what was it October, November last year? Yeah, I think looking back at that first post, it was it was late September. I okay. I just put a post up saying like, oh, I've just um, finally got round to uh, making a website. Here it is. Um, be cool if you guys could spread the word. And it went absolutely viral. Like I just <laughs> saw it pop up everywhere, and it. To be honest, I wanted it to be a soft launch because I hadn't sorted a web shop out. There was nothing to, there was nothing to buy. There was no stories. There was no YouTube channel. It was very much like to my mates. Oh, by the way, guys, I've made this website, and you know they shared it, and you know how it goes. Like something just goes nuts on social media, yeah. and um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was huge seeing that, and then stories start flooding in straight away, which was amazing. Um, and then, you know, bit by bit, we added to it. So initially I thought, right, um, what, what, what can we do? Because a lot of people are asking, how can we help? How can we support what you're doing? So we just created a simple kind of donate page. And then we we're working on the merch. Then we sort of launched that. And then we launched a YouTube channel. And it's kind of grown from there. Um, but yeah, I know the reception's been huge. And like the stories that have been coming in, especially, um, have been really, really touching. You know, people sharing some really personal stories where, 
you know, the humble bike has made a massive difference to them. And, and even how like some of the stories that we've already told have made a massive difference to people, which is, which is huge. It's exactly what we wanted to do. Um, I mean, despite this, I think we're still just, we're just focusing on the UK largely. Like I think we've had okay. a bit of visibility over in the US, but um, that's the next step really is, I mean, you know, trying to kind of create a bit more visibility um, over in North America, particularly. So, mm-hmm. so we're working with um, a guy called Jacob Gibbons, who I think has been on the podcast before, actually, from uh, Aspect Media. Uh-huh. Um, we're going to create a, a rider resilience film, Mark II, you know, like yeah, a proper this effort. Was coming. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and push that out, push that out globally with like a proper press release and yeah, create a little bit more, bit more global momentum, if you like. Amazing. And you've got uh, Seven Mesh, I think, supporting as well, who have also supported the podcast. Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, the nice thing with working in the industry is you end up knowing so many people and you've got that kind of personal rapport with a lot of folk. Um, so I've actually, I've never met TJ, the owner, um, in the flesh face to face, but I've spoken to him um, via Zoom like this, you know, on numerous occasions. And oh. uh, when... Uh, when he found out I was poorly, because he didn't know initially, when he found out I was poorly, he kept reaching out to me out of the blue, just saying like, how are you doing? How's things? La, la, la. And then when I launched Ride Resilience, I just got this email saying like, we're 100% behind it. Like, let us know what we can do. We're 100% behind this. Nice. Um, and it's great because, you know, Seven Mesh is a brand that we work with at Line Equipment. Um, but I'm a massive fan of what they do anyway, with me coming from that kind of outdoor background. And uh-huh. um, yeah, I'm, I'm a proponent of, of having having good kit anywhere at the best of times so it's a really nice fit to be honest i think they're a real again a real adventure enabler fantastic and the support of kendall mountain festivals continued as well right you were like the the charity partner for bike night this year yeah correct yeah yeah so so this year um yeah they asked me to be their like nominated charity so um you end up doing like a raffle um the interval we had a little pop-up stand there selling some merch at the entrance um which has been really nice and then you know locally as well off the back of that um there's a an event called the gen ride which which takes place on an annual basis so yeah. that's in memory of the late jen hill who passed away um due to lung cancer back in i want to say i want to say 2015 but i might i might have got that wrong but um yeah she was a deputy editor at single track mag and uh, obviously she was a, a really really keen cyclist as well so gen ride still happens and every year um, some of the proceeds are donated to um, the hospice where she passed away and then uh-huh. the other half goes somewhere else. So this year that is Ride Resilience as well, which is which is great because I'm, um, I'm a passionate mountain biker, always have been, but, you know, the, the, the bike industry is far bigger than just mountain bikes and I'm really keen to kind of step into the world of gravel and perhaps road as well just to, you know, share this message beyond the kind of gravity, uh, gravity orientated side of the sport, if that makes sense. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It's a story that can resonate with anyone that appreciates bikes, I think. So it makes, uh, it makes a lot of sense. You've, you've got a podcast channel as well now telling some of these stories, both on YouTube and across all the podcast platforms, right? Yeah. 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 That's, uh, uh yeah. I mean, initially I thought I'd do like a YouTube channel, um, because, you know, you can do interviews like this, but actually, I mean, if I look at myself a lot of the time, I end up listening to things rather than kind of sitting down and watching uh-huh. stuff. 
because I listen to a podcast whilst I'm driving or doing the washing up or whatever. And um, yeah, I figured actually it's um, it's a small amount of extra work to make a YouTube episode into a podcast. You just sort of need to do a small little re re-edit. Um, but it's just another avenue to sort of share people's stories. I mean, Chris, I must say it's uh, it's given me a newfound re- respect for podcasts. It's a huge <laughs> amount of work that goes into it. All you know, all in all, it's it's no mean feat. It's a big job. So yeah, fair play to you. Yeah, you've had some good guests though, eh? Like I was watching one with Martin Ashton. You've had James Anderson on, who's been on on this podcast as well. Like, is there is there plans for more? Because, like you say, it is is a chunk of work, right? Yeah, no, totally. Like initially, I thought I'll do one every week, and that soon fizzled out. I mean, with everything that's going on in my life, um, you know, my my energy levels very much dictate how much I can do with it at the moment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've got a huge number of guests that I'd love to interview um, in the pipeline. And it's just a matter of kind of like slotting that in. And um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the original plan, to be fair, was to actually go and meet people and go out for a ride with them and maybe like um, just have two wireless mics and sort of chat whilst you're riding and kind of have some of the um, some of the sounds around you as well, like a tire rolling on the gravel and things like yeah. that. But that takes so much more planning still that's not really happened that that much yet um but yeah no we've got you know we've got some some plans to do more with it and i always say to people as well you know anyone listening if they've got a story that they want to share um they're more more than welcome to reach out because we'd love to have that chat you know we've got those um we've got the blog as well if people prefer things in in written form don't want to jump on a podcast or a, a video interview like this um, because it's it's incredible how many how many people you will touch by by sharing your own story um, yeah. yeah and it, it, it will to a degree rely on that to happen for it to to keep moving forward if that makes sense definitely so if people want to send stories in like how what's the best way to get in contact um, just drop us an email, to be fair, uh, info at rideresilience.org, uh, or just use the contact function on the website. Uh, cool. Direct message on Instagram is fine as well. So there's a few of us working on uh, on the Instagram side of things. It's not just okay. you know me interacting with the community just, just by myself. Um, but yeah, just reach out to us and uh, and then we can take it from there. That That's probably the easiest thing. Nice one. Yeah, I'll make sure that I put links in the show notes to kind of everything we, we've talked about. So... I mean, you touched on this, you can't do everything, you can't do it forever. How do you make sure that this work continues after you're no longer able to do it? That's a kind of blunt way to put it, I guess. Yeah, that's the big question. Um, I think, I think, I mean, I'm quite happy in the sense that, you know, my story, my own personal story, is only the backbone to Ride Resilience. It's it's the story which kind of founded the movement, but I never mm. wanted the movement to be all about cancer. I didn't want it to be about me either. I wanted it to be about, you know, how riding bikes fosters resilience and allows you to deal with difficult situations. So um, I, I would be more than happy if somebody else took over the reins. And I often look at, there's a, um, a sort of similar charity in the climbing world called Climbers Against Cancer. Um, and the founder sadly passed away um, a while back, but it's still going from strength to strength now. And um, yeah, secretly, that's sort of my hope that actually this is a bit of a, 
a personal legacy project where actually I'm just planting the seed and it can grow into something much bigger. Um, I've set it up as a community interest company, so it's never for profit anyway. You know, yes, we can pay people salaries if needs be, but any profit that's made gets either reinvested into the business or will be donated to um, other charities around us that actually are close to our our core values. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I genuinely hope that actually, you know, there are people out there who think actually, yeah, I've got a couple of hours a, a week and I really, I've been looking for something that, that really kind of resonates with me that I'd like to kind of put some time into and we can make it more of a, a collective exercise, you know, rather than it just be you know, me on the story side of things. And then, you know, three of us on the social media side of things is actually more of a, I suppose like a Wikipedia effect, we're all kind of contributing, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And actually, to, to be honest, you know, being blunt about it, if I if I only have months left to live, then um, I, I think we probably need somebody to do the day-to-day -day running sooner rather than later. So there's a bit of a handover. We can have like, you know, our goalposts are clearly defined and yeah. um, and, and, and they can take, the, take over the reins. And I would have absolutely no qualms with that whatsoever. I think that's what's really needed for it to be um in existence long term nice so you're you're open to people coming coming to you with uh with thoughts and ideas that want to get involved right totally absolutely i think you know across the board whether it's like um merchandise whether it's stories whether it's things that we could do better um yeah at the end of the day i you know this is just a passion project but i've got no real background in doing any of this so you know even from the, the, the sort of the whole sound engineering side of things of podcasts and stuff like actually trying to make it sound good like i i feel like i'm spending a huge amount of time watching youtube episodes of how to make <laughs> things sound better and i feel like i could be more proactive elsewhere if yeah, yeah. there was just a preset that i could drop in like oh there's a preset for nils's voice pop and there it goes but yeah. um but yeah so anything like that i mean there's actually there is a um like a, a page on the website in terms of how people can support Ride Resilience. Okay. Um, and it's anything from just, you know, basic share this page with your friends all the way to, you know, contributing time, et cetera. Um, okay. and, and, you know, sharing some of people's skill sets to make it bigger and better. Brilliant. So I get maybe we've already covered this a little bit, but what, I guess, what would you ask from people listening to this podcast, whether that's riders or whether it's people from brands and within the industry like are there certain things that you would ask them to go and do or that you particularly need in terms of help with ride resilience or in terms of well, like in terms of supporting the movement i guess and then in also specifics in terms of of helping rider resilience kind of move to the next step yeah totally i i suppose for um you know everyday riders the biggest thing is to spread the message of rider resilience so one of the big things that i was hoping for is that and and, I, and it seems to be happening people wear um their merchandise with pride and they really want to kind of associate themselves with the brand um yeah. so that will help massively you know absolutely sharing sharing the page on social media um, little things as well to kind of please the algorithms like subscribe to the YouTube channel. Even if you don't watch every episode, it doesn't really matter. It'll help us to kind of pop up in, in Google rankings and YouTube rankings a little bit more. So it's those little things um, that, that people can do. Obviously sharing their stories with us or if they know someone 
who's got a really kind of um, uh, like a, a story worth telling, um, getting them in touch with us, that would be huge as well. Kind of making those suggestions um, will, will be massive. Then, yeah, like, it's, like I said before, if people have got particular skills in terms of like the more technical side of things and they want to help out, um, yeah, by all means, please do. It'd be huge. I mean, even just, you know, somebody creating like a, an awesome sticker sheet or something like that, you know, that just um, with like some top tube stickers that are motivational would be amazing. Um, okay. And then in terms of brands, you know, that um, like corporate sponsorship, I think long term, hopefully will be will be a big revenue stream for Ride Resilience. It'll allow us to, to do more. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, certainly from my work at Lion, I'm starting to notice a change in how brands allocate their marketing budget and that that yeah. um, like the advocacy budget is becoming more and more important, actually kind of paying back into the community and doing something for the greater good rather yeah. than just like putting more adverts in a magazine and trying to sell more stuff. It's about how can we come together and make the world a better place. So, you know, if there are any kind of brands listening who think actually, yeah, this is great and I really want to get behind it um, because it fits with our own aims then yeah, by all means, please get in touch. Um, I think as a channel, well, the channel and the movement grows, um, there's a huge number of ways in which we can, you know, give brands exposure and some return on investment. Um, but in return as well, you know, it will give us exposure. Like if we're doing stuff and they're sharing it, they've got a much bigger audience than than we could ever dream of having. So um, it, it works both ways massively. Yeah. 100%. Awesome. Good stuff, man. Well, we've, we've, we've talked about rider resilience. Let's kind of bring it back to you a little bit. How are you doing at this point? So we're, we're beyond the five year point. They told you five years, you've beaten that. Like, how are you feeling? Are you still able to ride? Like, how are you doing physically? How's, how's life, right? That is a big question. I feel like I need to touch some wood before I, before I say anything. (laughs) (laughs) No, at, at the moment, um, things are relatively stable i think um i mean with me having such a short bit of bowel left like absorption is always difficult and recently like my iron levels were pretty low um so if you have low iron levels then you've got a low red blood cell count as well so you carry less oxygen in your blood and that just makes you more tired it makes it harder to you know ride a bike etc so i really felt that but um it wasn't until recently that i actually figured out what was causing it um, and started taking iron supplements, but they only kind of do so much. So, um, yeah, that's been a, a little, a little bit tricky. Um, I've got a scan first week of April, so I'll have a, a good degree of scanxiety to go alongside with that <laughs> as always. Um, but, uh, but basically, I mean, in the liver, there's a couple of ping pong ball sized tumors, which, you know, uh-huh. they're not going to operate. They're there. Yeah. They were fairly stable last time. We've got the thing in the pelvis, which, um, um, which they, they tried to zap with radiotherapy in, in December. And to be honest, like I can sit now, I wouldn't have been able to sit for this amount of time, um, this time in December. So that's made a massive difference, but, um, it's unlikely that that will have got rid of it altogether. So at some point that's probably going to start kind of building up a bit again. And then you've got to just kind of tailor your pain medication a little bit. And uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I was talking to uh, to Steve from Can Quit Cartel, and we turns out we share a, f- a few bits of medication. You know, we've got the same sort of meds. Uh, and he warned me, he's like, "Oh, mate, pregabalin, no, oh, that stuff is dirty. You don't want to. You, you want to be careful with that." 
And he was completely right. Like you go onto it and actually it just makes you feel so detached. It's like a nerve painkiller. Okay. And it works on your brain rather than on your nerves. Um, right. So I just felt so spaced out. I remember going up to Aberdeenshire to ride for a weekend and it felt like like Nils was walking over there and like and like my thoughts were here, but it was like I could see myself in like this weird dream state because it takes no two way. or three days for your body to adjust to like a change in dose. Um, but anyway, all of that stuff is fairly stable at the moment. Um, with me having better energy levels now that I'm back on these iron supplements, I've been riding a fair bit more, to be honest. And also like awesome. the weather just starting to improve makes a big difference as well. Yeah. Um, you know, just in terms of the motivation to get out when it's freezing or horizontal driving rain, it's, it's quite difficult to get stoked to go out and ride, isn't it? Um, so I've actually, yeah, I've really enjoyed just leaving my camera at home and just, just riding trails, like just doing, just getting back into it. Um, trying not to overthink things and trying to find a little bit of flow again. So, yeah, I mean, Sometimes I get frustrated because I definitely don't ride as well as I used to. Uh-huh. But then then you, you have to remember, but I'm still riding. So what does it really matter in a way? You know, we're still riding fairly technical trails. Yes, I'm not going as fast and um, may not be riding as well, but we're still riding. And fundamentally, that's what it's all about. And I always think when I've been out for a ride, like I'm... I'm still alive. I'm, you know, I'm, I still feel alive. I'm still living. I'm not. I'm not knocking on death's door. Um, so it just makes me feel, makes me feel awesome. That's incredible. Yeah. Have you found that time has an elasticity to it? Like, have you, because in your position, I guess slowing down time is a good thing. Have you found ways to do that? Because there's definitely moments in your life where time seems to go really slowly, and others where it seems to fly by. I don't know if you've done really well, really good research, Chris, or if you're just, you know, on completely the same <laughs> same wavelength as me. But yeah, I absolutely think that riding bikes somehow sometimes can make or can give you the perception that time slows down a little bit. It's a little bit like, like I know you've got a, a little girl. Yeah. Um, you know, to them, a year is like a lifetime, isn't it? It just feels so long. Yeah. And I always thought it's because one year as a percentage of their lifetime is a big percentage. And that's why it seems so long. But I did a bit of research into it. And apparently it's because they're getting so many new kind of experiences and, you know, sensory input. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what, you know, it, it makes your brain work really hard to process all of that. And that's what gives things the perception of time slowing down. It's a bit like... Like if you nearly have a massive off on a bike, it it sometimes feels like you're going into like a matrix style slow motion. Yeah. You know, you just see yourself kind of flying through the air and you think, oh, this isn't going to end well. Um, <laughs> and it's the same thing. It's your brain just suddenly getting this adrenal shot and just going into overdrive. Um, and, and as a result, time sort of slows down. So I find that when I'm riding bikes and, you, and you're trying to do lots of things like, you know, picking your line, balancing, etc. Sometimes it does feel like, I don't know, like you, even though you've only been riding for two hours, it, it feels like you've discovered and seen a lot more in those two hours than, you know, two hours sat at home doom scrolling in on Instagram would have done, if that makes sense. So 100%. yeah, th- there's, there's, a, there's a lot, a lot to be said for it. And I, and yeah. I genuinely don't know whether that was just me 
um, or whether other people experience that as well. Um, but yeah, I often think, you know, if you if you want to if if you want to make your weekend count, just just go and ride loads. Like just just get out on the bike and um, you know ride some some awesome trails, and you'll feel like you get a lot of bang for your buck uh, your weekend. Definitely, man. That's a nice place to start to wrap it up. We've got our final four questions that we've asked pretty much everyone. Um, so we'll we'll hit those up. First of those, if our listeners had £150 to spend to improve their performance on a bike or to improve their enjoyment of riding a bike, perhaps, what would you recommend they go and spend it on? Oh, good question. You know what? I'd, I'd actually say... And I know it's going to sound a little bit biased with my connection with Seven Mesh, but I'd actually say get some get a decent waterproof jacket because we all go and spend five, six grand on a bike, no problem. And then we ride around in a <laughs> yeah. bin bag effectively and we're just uncomfortable, sweaty. A lot of people don't even bother with the waterproof anymore because, you know, they're riding around in some rubbish pee coated stuff which just doesn't breathe. And genuinely, one of the biggest things that I found when, you know, I started riding with with proper quality kit is that you can effectively get out in any weather and feel really quite comfortable. And it just opens up so many more opportunities. And plus, there's a safety aspect as well. If you're riding in high mountains, um, you know, actually, if you have an injury or if you have a mechanical, being able to put a shell on quickly to break that wind um, it just stops you from under, you know, getting too cold quickly. And then when you get back on the bike, not being able to feel your brake levers because your hands have sort of seized up. Yeah, there's a lot, lot to be said for it. I know normally people would say coaching or something like that. But yeah, genuinely, I think clothing is massively undervalued still in the mountain biking world. For sure. And if it enables you to ride bikes more often in a more comfortable way, then I'm behind that. That's a mm. good answer. Right. Next one. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Start riding mountain bikes. <laughs> like I, okay. How I, old were you when you started? Uh, I started riding properly when I was, I would have been 21, 22. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's when I, when I really got into it and I moved to the lakes. Um, before that, like I said before, it's always like it was a way of life. Um, mm -hmm. didn't really sort of take it too seriously but yeah I look at 16 year olds now and I know the kit was different you know when I was 16 but if I look at 16 year olds now and the amount of fun they're having I just think like yeah. I spent I spent my time in like nightclubs and things like that you know I, I, I'm sort of semi-embarrassed to say it but I spent a lot of money <laughs> going to like fabric in London and things like that and actually I should have probably just bought a mountain bike and experienced the good times sooner all good. All right, next one. If you could have a coaching session from anyone, past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them? And it doesn't have to be like a mountain bike thing. It could be a life thing or a totally different skill. Like, there's, a, there's a guy who I've gained a huge amount of respect for over the last few years, and it's Andy McKenna. I mean, we've got a similar... We're in a similar situation where... Um, you know, he's got multiple sclerosis, he's also sort of sat on a ticking time bomb. For him, it's mm -hmm. getting more and more difficult to ride bikes. But whenever I go and see him um, and we chew the fat, I always find that he gives me a different perspective on how I should look at things. 
And uh, yeah, it might not be in terms of like skills coaching, but certainly kind of like life coaching. Um, I think the guy's got a lot to offer for sure. Are there any particular little techniques or thoughts that Andy's given you that have you found really helps or anything that stands out from your time with Andy? Yeah. Don't sweat the small stuff, I suppose. Like I remember when like, you know, you walk in their house and, um, like it just feels really relaxed. If that makes sense. I think sometimes, um, we can get a little bit too worked up about trying to get everything right and making sure the house is clean, the kids are sorted and stuff. And, you know, in that regard, I think Andy is a lot more horizontal than I am. And actually, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, he hasn't said it in as many words, to be honest, and he'll probably, he'll probably chuckle if he hears this, but, um, but yeah, no, I remember like, um, when I last visited him, we had a chat about it and he was like, yeah, we just, we just ignored all of that, you know, and now we're just focusing on, on living the good times. And I thought, you know what, good on you. Like, yeah, fair shout. Yeah. Nice way to look at things. All right. Last one. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Um, <laughs> should have come prepared to this, shouldn't I, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't do it every day, but I make time to take the kids to school when I can. And mm -hmm. um, just that, that little thing of, you know, having that routine of spending time with them, I think is really important. You know, like they're young, they're growing up quickly. And um, yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be hellishly stressful trying to get them sorted in time for school. <laughs> <laughs> But then sometimes, you know, when they go in and they're like super cheerful and, uh, and excited to see their friends and they basically skip to school, it, uh, it makes me start my day with a smile on my face. So yeah, that, that goes a long way for sure. Nice. Sounds pretty good to me, man. Well, it's been inspiring and really interesting to hear your story. I'm really excited to see how Rider Resilience progresses. If people want to find out more, where would the best places be for them to look so i guess we've got instagram website youtube T totally yeah so you know the best thing subscribe to or well, follow us on instagram subscribe to the youtube channel um follow us on the uh, various podcast channels that are available as well you know whatever whatever um uh service you use um and then yeah the website you know we're trying to keep that up to date as well with blog posts but um the other channels should link you back to that if there's a new blog post anyway so yeah cool. absolutely that, that would be that would be the a, a great place to start perfect we shall make sure we put a whole host of links to all of that stuff in the show notes i'll stick a link into the original rider resilience film because that's a good watch um any update on when the the new film will be available do you know when you're likely to launch that originally it was going to be late spring but um but what we're trying to do because i i'm always banging on about dawn raids and getting out you know at the crack of dawn when sun when, when the sun's rising 
we felt like we should really include that as part of the film. So I'm I'm basically watching the forecast like a hawk every day, trying to find this <laughs> slot when it looks settled and it looks good, and we can go in and uh, enjoy our little weather window. So um, yeah, it's probably going to be we're looking at summertime now. I would I would have okay. thought yeah yeah, um, and then yeah, it'll depend a little bit on on Jacob's schedule as well. But uh, but yeah, I mean, we're just still shooting the second half um, locally. And then once that's done, we should be, uh, yeah, we shouldn't be too far off. Great. Good stuff. I guess if people subscribe to the channels, they'll see that when it comes out. So Totally. Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Well, Nils, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, wish you all the best. Thank um, you. Yeah, like I say, I look forward to seeing Rider Resilience grow and become full with incredible stories like your own thank you very much chris thanks for your time it's been a real pleasure to chat to you today all right that's it for this episode with nils i really hope you've enjoyed it and took something positive away from the conversation don't forget if you want to help support the podcast and the best way to do that is now by heading over to patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast and setting up a donation that's patreon spelled p-a-t-r-e-o-n I know that times are tough for a lot of people right now, so if that doesn't work for you, then no worries. But if you are able to support, then it's very much appreciated. There's a lot more awesome content coming your way over the course of 2023, so make sure you're following the podcast by hitting that button in your podcast app or by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can also get a bit of extra downtime by signing up to our newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. Also, merch is available at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. All right, that's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. <laughs>